On this episode of DLN Extend, we discuss how Linux makes the world go round. This episode of DLN Extend is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. Welcome to episode 53 of DLN Extend. DLN Extend is a community-powered podcast. We take conversations from the DLN community, from places like the DLN Discourse, forums, Telegram group, Discord server, and more. We also take topics from other shows around the network to give our takes. Joining me today are two of the most fun people I get to talk to on a weekly basis, Wendy, the camera czar of the Destination Linux Network, and Matt, the man that makes special effort each week to make sure I exhaust my fun budget on games. How are you guys? Doing fantastic. How are you this week, Nate? Oh, you know, this is a much better week already, except for the weather. The weather kind of took a dump on me. Outside of that, I'm not burdened by all the nonsense of things from last week. You know, it's that time of year you know what I'm talking about? Yes, yes, I do. And Matt? I'm doing good. It looks like I missed some fun last week. You did. Matt, what have you got going on? I actually have bought eight terabytes of storage. Wow. <laughs> For what are you going to put on there? Games, I'm sure? Pretty much. <laughs> games are getting quite large at this point. One of the games that I just recently downloaded was, I think, like 63 gig. Once install. Holy Whoa. cow. Yeah, the game was a Final Fantasy 13. I'm not gonna lie, NVMe prices and just normal two five flat drives for SSDs are still around a hundred dollars. Not exactly the best gigabyte to ratio there. What I ended up doing is I looked at external drives. They had four terabyte external hard drives with USB three, so at least decent throughput. And they were $75. Wow. So I bought two. So one's going to go on the workstation and one's going to go on the gaming rig. And those are going to be the system's external drives. And I'll drag and drop Steam games as I need to onto the SSDs and stuff. That's kind of why I bought those. Because at that price, I was just like, I'm getting like quadruple of storage. To me, it's more important to have that kind of level of capacity than necessarily speed. Is there any redundancy in that? Is it like a RAID or is it just? raw just raw external storage if they fail it's one of those i don't care my problem is is i have a bunch of other drives so like i probably have 18 different mix of three five drives 2.5 drives some flat two five drives for ssds and everything else but i just have a dock i guess you could say that turns them into external storage and you can just pop them in and out. Trying to manage all of those and trying to remember what data is where all the time gets a little annoying. That was the other purpose of the four terabytes of storage per machine. That's basically what I've been up to, though. Lots of drag and drop and copy. Oh, yes. Do you have it mount like at boot time, like your Etsy FS tab, or is it just a USB drive that just mounts when the user session starts? I have it start on boot as far as how Dolphin and stuff sees it. On the Windows system, it's just a normal USB drive. So it does the same thing. That's what I've been up to. <laughs> what about you, Wendy? What have you been up to? I finally got my desk finished. I am so excited. I spent most of the day Friday filing down screws, sanding everything. I got the first top coat on the desktop, wanted to get the second one on, but by the time my daughter and I got the first coat of the primer on, it was already, what, like nine or 10 o'clock, and I didn't want to stay awake for another three hours in order to get the second coat on. Bright and early Saturday morning, I went and got the second coat of primer on. With the brand that I'm using for primer and epoxy, I needed to wait another 24 hours after applying the primer before I could do 
the epoxy pour. Sunday was the big day. Oh my gosh, it turned out really good. I'm quite happy with the way it turned out. Pouring epoxy, especially in this style, is so much fun. I'm trying to find other projects that we can do just so I can play with the colors and the pour and all of that stuff a whole lot more. If you look right here, you'll be able to see what my desk looks like right now. If you notice at the beginning of that, there is some damage to it already and that was 100% my fault. It is sitting in the garage. We are still pretty early in the spring. Nights get really cold, which typically even in the summer, nights get pretty cool anyway. This epoxy likes to be right around 70 degrees and keeping the garage heated right now isn't too much of an option even though we've had some heaters running to help kind of compensate. It's still getting pretty cold. On Monday, when I went to do the clear coat on top of it, it had set up enough that it was good to go and I could do the clear coat, but I wasn't thinking. And I'd set my mixing bucket down on the desktop, started pouring part A, walked away, did some other stuff, you know, so it could drain. I'm down to the last of the bottle, came back, added part B, mixed it for three minutes, and then went to remove that tub from the top of my desk and it had sank. So now in one of the sections, I have this blemish that is all my fault that took this really pretty pattern and put this stupid circle in it. Oh man. Yeah, exactly. It was kind of a bummer that I'd done it to it. But top coat's on. Now we just have to wait for it to be fully cured. It says seven days is what it recommends as the full cure time to make sure that the epoxy is really good and hard. And I know that does sound like a really long time, but this is a long working epoxy. So you have, depending on temperature, especially if you're in the range that it wants it to be, you have like an hour, hour and a half to work with the epoxy, which is crazy, right? Most epoxies are so much faster than that. But because this is a long working epoxy, it does take a lot longer to fully cure to get that good hardness. Technically, it would be done on Monday if I was at that perfect temperature range. But because it's so much cooler in there, we're probably going to go like a week and a half to two weeks before I actually get to use it. But the pour is done. Besides my funky little circle now on the top of the desk, the rest of it turned out beautiful. I'm so excited with the way that it turned out. It is one of a kind. No one will have a desktop like that but me because I did it myself. So in my mind, I'm imagining that the spot that you set the bucket and it's got the little ring, that's where the monitor is going to go in so no one will see it. So it'll be fine. No. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so where the keyboard's sitting or the mouse and no one's going to see it. No, it's still not in a good place for that either. Oh, man. I tried. <laughs> I know. Like, I did a doozy. I couldn't even put it in a place it would be easy to cover up. I might be able to cover it up if I put the printer there, but that would mean bringing the printer back into my room. We talked about the fact that having the printer out in the living room where the kids have easier access to it has been really nice. So when I'm in here doing the show, doing other things to where I can't have them back and forth into my gym office bedroom, then they can still print stuff off, access it, and I don't have that noise happening in here or them needing to come in and out. It makes sense. I should do the same thing. Actually, I did the same thing, so I'm good now. It makes it handy, doesn't it? It does, until you have to go scan something real quick and then you use the old printer. I get it. Nate, what do you have going on right now? Well, I'm eyebrow deep in Raspberry Pi fun. I purchased a couple of Raspberry Pi Zero and a few Raspberry Pi 3Bs because they're cheaper and I have a specific purpose for them. But I had such good luck with the Raspberry Pi 4s, I want to start playing with the 3s a little bit for tasks that don't really require the additional power, essentially. What I'm going to be doing is setting up on a Raspberry Pi Pi 3, a WordPress instance where I can use it as like a continuity book 
for organizations that need to organize information. Don't necessarily want to put it online, but want to have like web-like intranet access to it. So I have a Raspberry Pi that I'm working on setting up this WordPress instance so that you just plug it into the network and then anybody can access it within the organization. You know, they can punch whatever information in there and how to use a piece of equipment or procedures for doing whatever. That's what I've been playing with. I have some Pi Zeros because I know this might come as a shock to you, but I like vintage tech and some emulator stuff. <laughs> I know, shocking, right? There's all these different little projects out there using Pi Zeros to do like emulator devices, handheld Game Boy type things. I've looked at a lot of them. I think it's time to build one. So I have a zero set aside so I can start doing that kind of excitement. Sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. This is right up your alley with some of the different playing with tech at the same time as bringing back those old games so your kids can play with them and you can play with them. Right. Just going to mess around with it, see how it goes. But there's some other ideas I have for the Pi Zero as well. I don't want to say them here and then disappoint you later. We'll just go ahead and wait. You know, it's kind of like one of those crowdfunders. You pay for something like a phone and then it never comes to fruition. <laughs> it's not like anyone's paying me, but I want to tell you about something I start making and then I don't actually start making it and then be a disappointment. I'm going to wait on that. I might end up changing my mind. But there's different little ideas of how I can incorporate Linux into different areas of my life to make things more convenient. Nate, something tells me you would eventually finish it though on like certain crowdfunders. This is true. <laughs> yeah. And also nobody would have any money lost in it. They just have like maybe time lost and interest in it. So exactly. So it's totally okay then. <laughs> right. This episode of DLN Extended is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. DigitalOcean recently announced new features and services such as a virtual private cloud in all regions, free of charge. This lets you create multiple private networks to isolate your workloads. Container Registries is now available to all users. Easily store and manage private container images and push images seamlessly to DigitalOcean's Kubernetes. You can get all of this plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. Get started on DigitalOcean for free with $100 credit by going to do.co slash dln and you can use that $100 credit for spinning up over a dozen droplets or even some monster-sized droplets for two months. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash DLN. Obviously, without Linux, I couldn't do the things with Raspberry Pi or have the fun I do have with them unless Linux was here. The question is, how does Linux grease the wheels of life and make your world go round day in and day out for the productive things? Or I guess for the fun things, it doesn't matter. It started by making my world go round in the simplest of fashions. It worked when I needed it to work. I've told this story multiple times on multiple different shows, probably even on this one once or twice. But if you haven't heard it yet, we do seem to have new listeners joining the show. Thank you so much for showing up. So if you haven't heard this, here's a little info. If you've heard heard this before. I'm sorry. And it probably won't be the last time we talk about it. I looked for Linux because we were in the early days of Windows 10. So of course, early days of a new version of Windows anyway is a little rough. Updates would come in constantly happening. And in order to get any work done, I was having to fiddle with my computer. Decided I was done, found Linux. It was just working. And I hate to use that term. It just works. But it was in comparison to what I had before. In the very beginning, it made my world go around because I could just sit down at my desk 
desk and not worry about messing with things, figuring stuff out just so I could get work or play done. Now it runs my world because it is exactly what all the systems in this house use. It's what my kids use. It's what my in-laws use. I'm working on updating a laptop for my dad so that he can start using it. It makes my life as tech support for family so much easier. A huge part of my life anymore is the community doing two different shows on the network, this one and Hardware Addicts. 100% we're doing the show in Linux. I wouldn't be part of the community if it wasn't for Linux. I wouldn't be doing these podcasts if it wasn't for Linux. So we can't discount the fact that things that I do for fun, like these podcasts, and really, I do them for fun. It is enjoyable to sit down and talk with Matt and Nate, Ryan and Michael on the podcast stuff, on hardware, on Linux. It's a huge part of my life anymore just in that. Well, we'll detract the Michael and Ryan part. (laughs) (laughs) I love those guys. (laughs) Just gonna be clear. I totally agree with you, Wendy. Like a lot of the stuff that we do on the network, we couldn't do if it wasn't for Linux. You know, we wouldn't have all content to begin with to talk about. Definitely agree that the content and the stuff that we do has become, like you mentioned, a very big part of our day in and day out lives. Stuff that greases the wheels, that makes our world go round, etc. Very integral. Just from looking at it from a content creator's point of view, we couldn't do a lot of the stuff we do without Linux. I know speaking for me, I wouldn't be able to do the stuff I do with OBS, some live streaming or game capture or the episode we have coming out for GameSphere soon with you. I wouldn't be able to do that without having that ability to, example, play those games on Linux. There's very big things that I think Linux fills in that sphere of content creators that generically you hear, oh, well, you can't do X on Linux. You can't do Y on Linux. We have an entire network that's built on Linux using Linux software and Linux at its core. I think that is key right there. It's not just we do shows about Linux, but every single person who is a part of this network believes in it and uses it for content creation. We are not one of those channels that talks about Linux and then uses something else in the back end. You've talked about how you enjoy games on every single platform, which is fantastic. When it comes to doing a Linux show, you're still passionate about doing that show on the OS that you're talking about. Yeah, very much. Any content creation for a couple episodes of games that we've done, that's all been done on Linux. Every bit of editing that I do has been done strictly on Linux if it's for the network. 100% all the time. It's not just about eating your own dog food. It's about there are things in example OBS on Windows that make it terrible as opposed to things on Linux. Give you an example. Single click overlay on Windows, double click overlay on Linux. And Wendy, you can attest to this because when we were recording, glad I was saying I was recording on Linux. At least I didn't have to single click, double click issue. It's kind of like the KDE default. Yeah, exactly. It's weird things like that that people won't understand for me double clicking on an overlay in OBS makes a ton more sense than a single click and messing up the entire setup you already had in OBS if you're using it on Windows. That would be extremely frustrating having your OBS set up exactly where you want it and then you accidentally click something completely mess it up and have to start over again before the show begins. Yeah and it is very frustrating and I 
just prefer the workflow setup of that in Linux. It makes Linux a better recording OBS streaming setup than Windows. To me, the single click thing on like a Windows system is just counterintuitive because all you want to do is you want to click on it. You might have to change it. You might have to move it just a little bit or something. One click and you could have your DPI setting so high on your mouse if you're a gamer that one click and oh, hey, look, that element just went off the screen. <laughs> The double click thing is just an indication that Linux is a better portion and definitely makes my world go around when it comes to content creation. And it makes obviously the network go around with content creation. I mean, just poke fun at Michael about how many OBS scenes he has. Lots. Last night, he mentioned, I know it's a going joke that I have so many OBS scenes, but to be honest, I really do have a ton. I don't doubt that at all. I think he collects some like baseball cards that people still do that sort of thing. Kind of. He is so precise in how he wants things to look during a show show multiple scenes make that possible to happen and instead of removing scenes maybe he doesn't need anymore i don't know i have not seen his studio his production obs but i would be curious to see exactly what that looks like and how many scenes he actually does have though he did admit that isn't so much a joke as the truth he has a ton of obs scenes that's just funny oh michael I think Linux definitely helps our content creation world go around. I mean, just look at some of the companies that are not specifically looking at Linux, but like stuff that's available on Linux. Companies like Ubisoft and say what you want about Facebook and all the other nonsense about them. They're investing in projects like Blender and stuff. And that's a huge investment for when it comes to like Linux content creation. That gives us a decent, basically Adobe After Effects type of app. At least that's how I view it anyway. I know it does more. That isn't necessarily Linux, but it is is open source. Mm-hmm. One of the wonderful things about Blender is you can use it on a multiple systems, but it has a perfect home on a Linux system. Exactly. That makes content creation, though, graphic designers, 3D models, that kind of stuff, that makes it totally possible because they can now do their work on Linux because of that project. It doesn't limit them. Adobe is making it so that you have to get billed year round, and now they have basically early termination fees for Creative Cloud. Oh my gosh, that is absolutely ridiculous. I haven't seen that, but I also don't look at Adobe News because I don't use that product at all. That is one reason for me as a creator to say, I have limits. We are in the current state where people are typically getting nickeled and dime to death with different pay a dollar here, pay five dollars here, or in this case of Adobe, pay tons of money every month, every year in order to have these services. And you just reach a point where enough is enough and having alternatives that you can switch to, or in my case that I found after I moved to Linux, I didn't know anything about Darktable until my switch to Linux. I didn't know anything about Audacity until my switch to Linux. And that comes back to, I guess, what you'd say is a starter distro. The first one that I was really using day-to-day was Corora. Now, you can say that it had a lot of bloat on it, But as somebody new coming into Linux, it was absolutely perfect. There were so many applications that I had never been exposed to being on on Windows and not really searching the open source community because these applications were out there. I could have installed them on my Windows system. I just didn't know they were there. And a distro like Corora, I'm still so sad that it's gone, 
because those apps were pre-installed and I was searching and playing with the desktop and seeing what came with the system, I found those applications. And that is 100% thanks to Linux and distributions that said, hey, here's this software that's available and it's really awesome. Yeah, for sure. I know that default applications, at least years ago for me, was pretty huge in learning like what I could do with Linux. Some people who say, well, you know, in a minimal install, yeah, I got it. I understand. You're one of those people. That's fine. That's cool. For people who are coming into Linux and don't know what they don't know, having a nice smattering of applications makes it a great way to get started and so forth. I can be thankful for my early days in Mandrake. The software that they provided by default was pretty huge. If you get the things that I need done to be done. What makes my world go round or how Linux makes my world go round is first and foremost, data management. Especially now with these newer file systems, it's even better now, like ButterFS, how it has this deduplication so if you have like multiple copies of something, it doesn't actually take up more space in your hard drive, which I know that's a problem for me. I have moved my filing cabinet and everything that has to do with storing important documents all digitally. Printer scanner, scanner specifically is very important. I started the process before Linux and it was really very painful. But when I got into using Linux full time, this is like early 2000s, they made data management very nice. Without the fact the file systems don't become significantly fragmented, although it's not as big of an issue today because of SSDs and so forth. Got it. But the way I didn't have to worry about maintaining my system just to get a job done with it. That made my world go around hugely. Another way that Linux really makes my world go around, and this is probably no one's going to agree with me on this one, but email, web email providers, I guess those are okay for most people. I have to have something like Kmail that I can actually move messages to a local archive very nicely, very easily. I can sort things and keep stuff for years. I have emails dating back to 2003 when I first started using Kmail. Still, everything just works. Being able to manage, having your data stored very well where you can actually access it cleanly and with reliably has saved my butt more than once. Without something like Kmail, and maybe Thunderbird can do it too. I don't know. The way you can rapidly search for messages and how things are sorted. I mean, just a quick little type and you can get to what you need. It's been absolutely huge for me. You know, I don't care what people say. It's way more efficient than Google's mail service as far as quickly accessing old messages. Without Kmail on Linux, I probably would have gotten myself into more trouble in the past. Something else, calendaring. I love the way I can do calendaring in Linux and how much I've not seen any method better than how I can do it in Linux, specifically with K-Organizer and how I can pull in multiple different calendar sources and overlay schedules or break them out by specific calendar or whatever. With my home education computer, I have everything that's displayed so kids know what they have coming up and when, when they have to do certain aspects of work, and also when they have after school events or outside of the home events. They can see very plainly now, and I can input the information on a different calendar, you know, from my phone or from my computer. Everything kind of pulls into that central computer for them to see. Flexibility of that is absolutely amazing. Sure, can you do it other ways? Yeah, there's plenty of ways you can actually accomplish that. The way I can do it in Linux is just so much easier. I tried it on other platforms, it's not as convenient. A huge one for me is notes. I use this thing called TiddlyWiki. I've been using it for a long time. And yes, you can use this on any platform, which is one of the conveniences of it. Essentially, it's just a local file that runs like a web application in a tab in a browser or whatever. But the flexibility of creating a specific Firefox profile to bring that up in such a way that makes it a nice, easy to use application, a very accessible application, is something I don't know how I would even do that in Windows. Is it something that's necessary? No, probably not. But you know, when it comes to my ability to work efficiently, this is really very helpful. I can keep going on like ease of synchronization. My various computers that I use for different jobs, they work off the same data set pool. And I use sync 
thing to keep all those things integrated, uh, up to date from one machine to another. And I have used Sync Thing on Windows. It is not a good experience. And this is actually recently I've used it on Windows, but it doesn't run as cleanly. I would say it's a little more work to have it running. It'll shut itself off and whatnot, or it doesn't start back up sometimes. I'm not really sure what the issue was. And frankly, I didn't really investigate it. I want to go back to the first thing that you mentioned in this. You don't have the filing cabinets anymore. You use your system and scanning as your filing. I love this idea. Can you explain a little bit more of how you make that work? I have some files I do keep. Like they're specific. I have to keep originals. Your home mortgage packet, I'm not throwing that away. I have a digital copy of it, but I'm not throwing that away. Birth certificates, any government documents are kept in a filing cabinet. And other things that I kept, I want to keep originals of are very minimal, but things like bank statements or getting your vehicle repaired and stuff like that, I scan those documents immediately and then I file them as to what kind of a document it is. I had some really hard, fast rules. I not really abandoned, but I don't use as much. I can lump things things by event. Let's say I go on vacation. I want to keep all those receipts together. Well, let's say I go on a business trip. I keep all those receipts together and they're in a digital filing cabinet essentially on my computer, which is synchronized between all my computers. So should one of them blow up or whatever, I'm all set. I still have that data. What I've been meaning to do is actually set up a machine at my brother-in-law's house and have that synchronized too. So I have an offsite backup just using sync thing. I should do that yet. And since I got those Raspberry Pi 3s, I just got another idea. Anyway, but yeah, so I just use a scanner all the time. I scan a lot more than I print. I create just data packets, like data packages essentially to help me when I have to refer back to things. All my tax records from 2020 is in a folder. So even though I have the paper copies, I have a digital copy backup as well. And then after seven years, I'll get rid of paper copies because I no longer need them. Say I'm going to build something. Like let's say somebody is going to work on their garage and make it bigger. All those records that I have relating to that are in a folder digitally. When I got the permit from the city, I scanned that, put that in the folder as well. So everything is together. Like let's say I get a receipt from a Lowe's or a Home Depot. They have their own folders with subfolders with a year. And I put the name of whatever that is a date and then like what it is. So if it's a statement or receipt or a return or whatever, I have all those records so I can always refer back to them. And then because Plasma has such a good desktop search function, I can do searches based on date or based on keyword and then be able to pull those things up without having to dig through those folders as well. So there's all these different little ways that I use Linux to manage those records. And I can actually keep talking about that, but I'm going to bore somebody, specifically Matt, because it has nothing to do with gaming. I really like this. I really like this idea. Paper copies of stuff are good to keep on hand are difficult. They make a mess. Yes, they do. They make a big mess. And having them in a place where you can easily access them for doing taxes, looking something up, all of that. I love this idea. That almost makes me want to put the scanner back in my office space or use... No, I really don't want to use the old printer that I still have right now. I say it's old, but I haven't replaced it yet. I don't want to bring that one in because that multiple feed tray doesn't work anymore. And that's part of the reason why I want to replace that one. Scanning documents that are more than one page are a pain when you have to go back and forth and load each document one at a time. I really like this idea. We may have to talk more about it after the show. Certainly. If you scan them at 300 DPI, just black and white, they don't take up much space at all. For the most part, you just have a good resolution copy of it that's black and white. It has a very tiny, and we're talking in the kilobytes of size. It doesn't eat up your file system. Obviously, color ones, the more bit depth you add to it, that obviously changes things. But I have, I guess now actually decades worth of documents that I've scanned. I've actually scanned some records older than when I started this process and just filed them accordingly. I'm actually going to find out here how big this is right now. 
today, as it sits with everything that I got, I'm at about three gigabytes. This is spanning into the 90s worth of records. That is really cool that you have so much documentation on there, but it really takes up so little space and can quickly find whenever you need to. And I should also say about 340-ish meg of that. I could probably throw away because they're duplicates. Like when I save different tax return stuff, I saved iterations of it and I haven't blown away all the iterations. There's a lot of that that I could probably blow away. It's really great. Three gigabytes for spanning more than two decades is not too bad. Like all my employer records are on here too. That's everything. And the cool thing is, mate, you're able to do that all because of Linux and Raspberry Pis. Yep. The other thing too is BitRot, because I'm using ButterFS, it's a self-maintaining file system, so I don't have to worry about losing. Actually, XFS, EXT4, they've all been great. And I had one where I've lost data and I can go back and literally check at any point in time and I still have that stuff. I mean, it is doable on other platforms, but is it as doable as nice and cleanly and portably? I have a hard time believing it is, honestly. So the other way that Linux makes life easier for me or greases my wheels is older computers. I can keep those things running for my kids to learn on, to do things. Different educational like G-Compras, which I don't know if that's even on any other platforms outside of Linux. So they can do those rehearsal drill learning, especially for the youngest learning is alphabet and whatnot. Sure, I can use ABC mouse or whatnot. There's online services you can do that. Now, I'm not a big fan of online services, but I can avoid them. And G-Compras is pretty great. If the kids break the computer, it's 12 years old anyway. It's not that big a deal. I'd have a hard time being able to do that exact same thing on any other platform. If it's a Mac, it wouldn't have been supported anymore. It would have been totally dumped. I'm not sure I get Windows tend to run on those old netbooks. I doubt it. Yeah, especially with as heavy as Windows 10 seems to run anymore. Mm -hmm. If it's a system that has pretty good resources or it's a newer system, so things have been tweaked in order to allow it to run better. Older laptops in general, just because some of those drivers or tweaking resources don't seem to handle Windows 10 very well. I could be wrong, especially where I try to avoid loading that up on systems at all costs. So if you have an old laptop that seems to be running really good in Windows 10, let us know about it. I just haven't seen it yet. Yeah, it'd be good to know. There's 64-bit Atom processors. I think they might be two-core, maybe. I think they're two-core. Acer One Netbooks. I'm sure Matt has had a dozen of these things. At least half a dozen. Hey, now. They're great little machines and perfect for the kids. It actually sits on a kid's lap quite nicely and does everything they need it to do. I can have them start writing their papers and everything else, practice typing and so forth. If they break them, oh well. And Nate, I'll have you know the ones I had were the HP Mini Notes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Never had one of those. But those Acers are nice. Actually, I like the Mini Notes because they were the aluminum bodies. Oh, fancy. Oh, see, can't yeah. hide money. Can't hide money. Oh, oh yeah, can't hide money. <laughs> I think you can go online and buy for like 60 bucks now. They're like uber cheap. That's all possible, again, because of Linux. Yeah, right. That is a cool thing because those things, Windows 7, 8, 10, even XP, were painful on those. A lot of that's the hardware. Let's be real. Yeah. The things that made those really useful, like in your case, is the fact that they can run Linux, the lower system requirements and stuff that are needed on most Linux distros. I know a lot of 32-bit systems are going out the door, but the fact that those machines, when they came out in, what, 2007? Something like that, yeah. So the fact that those are going on, I'm going to assume probably at least almost a decade old now, because I think the last ones were like 2012. 
12, that those are still kicking around and usable is a testament to what we can do with Linux and how it can help our overall technological life and what you're doing with your Raspberry Pis and stuff, how it can help us with our personal lives as far as like organization and everything else without using something like Google. <laughs> right. Also, when you have those locally, you control it locally, you don't have to worry about the service going away. Mm-hmm. Basically, always going to be available to you on Linux. Even if the project fizzles out, it's usually in maintenance mode for some things that I use for a decade. It's still in maintenance mode. Maybe there's no features being added. It's feature complete and you can still use it. It may look a little funny now, but it still works. You know, and if you want to take the time and prove it a little bit, work it if no one's doing anything with it. It's all possible. This episode of DLN Extend is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a PIN to easily access your password manager, as well as additional authentications such as a master password and adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started for free. There are many reasons why I chose Bitwarden as my personal password manager. One of those reasons, it is 100% open source. You can also self-host your Bitwarden instance. They also offer security audits to make sure your passwords are as secure as they can possibly be. Go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started for free. They offer a premium account for just $10 per year. What do you get with that premium account? One gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, or Duo, Vault Health Reports, TOTP authenticator storage and generation, priority customer support. Make the smart move like many of the community have and go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started for free. If you're like me though, you'll want that premium account for just $10 per year to support this amazing open source software. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of DLN Extend. There are many other ways that Linux makes the world go round for each of us and greases the wheels of life. Wendy, what else do you have going on in your life that may be a little greasy? That would be one of the latest releases of GIMP. I am really excited about some of the additions that are in this one. Nomad is not 100% non-destructive editing yet. We talked about that just a little bit ago. Oh. <laughs> but it does have some really cool features that I am excited about. And the biggest one, or shall I say the biggest two that are in this 2.10.24 release, yes, that is still a mouthful. The first one is the negative darkroom. Most of us came from a time before the digital camera or before digital cameras were really all that good. This negative darkroom lets you adjust or edit scans of negatives and then be able to save and use those pictures instead of just leaving them as a negative. In certain cases, some of our physical pictures have had water damage. The negatives themselves are still really good still high quality. This is one of those ways that you can continue to have those family memories be part of future generations by using this negative darkroom. I have some negatives that I scanned a really long time ago. They're still on my backup drive. This is one of those things that I plan on playing with really, really soon just because why not? The other one links to 
also stuff that we've talked about in the past, and that is communication between different pieces of software that you use in a workflow. For me, that tends to be Darktable, super awesome raw image support, and then GIMP, where I take the image in, do some layering, that kind of thing. Right now, I'm going to open a raw file in GIMP just to see exactly what happens. I never open raw files in GIMP because I do all of my editing in Darktable itself. Oh, so sweet. What's that? Okay, so I was in GIMP and I opened up a raw file. It opens the raw file in Darktable instead of opening it in GIMP. So now that this image is opened, let's do just some basic editing. Now I'm done with it and I want to import it into GIMP, what happens? If I close this window, yes! It immediately brought it into GIMP with the edits that I had after I closed the window. That is so cool. That is very cool. That's incredible. This has been a feature already inside GIMP since 2.10, where if you open up a raw file inside of GIMP, it will use either Dark Terrible or Raw Therapy for you allowed to make the adjustments on that raw image. Then as you close it with your adjustments, it's automatically imported into GIMP. Now, because Darktable is getting some additional changes to its API and these two projects are talking to each other, those changes are already implemented into GIMP. I love it when projects work together. I know it's awesome when projects work together. Everybody wins when projects work together, only in Linux. And this is specifically something that we have talked about on the show, wanting more communication between different projects that are working towards the same goal. So both of these projects, the goal is photography or content creation in general in that type of visual form and having these two projects communicating with each other as we want to have the user experience awesome, no matter whether they're pulling the image directly into Darktable, editing it, or if they want to start by opening GIMP, do some quick edits in a raw format and then finish things up in GIMP. These are some of the changes we're making. That way you can keep your user experience and our user experience flowing smoothly. Well, I mean, it's nice to know that they've been listening to the Destination Linux Network podcasts. So yeah, it's all us. We'll take full credit for it, right? Wendy, we'll totally talk about (laughs) taking full credit in that because we talked about workflow of one application flowing into another. Yeah, yeah. No, I actually don't think that highly of myself, but I'm really excited to see them doing that. Yeah, it's really, really cool to see that. We really missed you last week, Matt. We need to have a game suggestion. What do you got? Actually, I have a AAA game that came out for Linux natively. For those that want to know what this game is, this is Metro Exodus. The Metro games are high graphic, stealth-based, if you want, shooters, rated M. It's about what happens in Russia after basically World War III. How the people that are left survive basically using the old subway systems and stuff. It's kind of a cool concept really high fidelity game looking at it the actual requirements for the game aren't terrible it requires a minimum of a gtx 660 8 gigs of ram and at least a i7 from seven generations ago at this point i'm pretty sure if you've had any piece of hardware in about the last eight years you can probably potentially run this game at least on minimum settings i love this series because it does this one thing that i always love about games it creates a great atmosphere great world building and that kind of stuff so definitely one worth getting and i I would totally pay full price if I was not, and I emphasize the word, not buying games this year. I applaud you for sticking with that, even though this game was available. So it's not a brand new game, but it is new as native to Linux, right? 
Yes. This came out in February of 2019. Been out for a while. It had some complaints about it as far as like it was an Epic Store exclusive for a year that it went over to Steam. A lot of gaming nonsense that I really don't care to get into. But I love the fact that these guys have still stuck with making a Linux game native. And yes, it's on Mac OS too for those that are weird and use Mac OS for gaming. <laughs> I didn't realize Apple made computers with good GPUs. They do, but they're expecting you to use it for content creation and not for gaming which in there lies the problem <laughs> exactly <laughs> definitely a great atmospheric game something i would totally pick up if i did not make a commitment early in the year trailer whatever you want to call it the little advertising thing they use for it very cool it started out really neat with the steam train going through i like the atmosphere how well done it is it's not my favorite genre, you know, running around shooting people. I like the emphasis they put on customization of weapons. It's a really neat idea. I mean, practicality, no, not really in real life, but it's still a really, really neat concept. I like that idea of like upgrading and modifying to get results that you want, whether it be in a shooter like this or any other kind of game where you can develop your own flair and taste for things, I guess. That's a real neat game. And I recommend people actually buying this at full price because it shows the developers that Linux users are actually willing to spend some money. Yeah, for sure. And in fairness, it does counteract the 30% that Steam takes too. Oh, 30%, huh? Yeah. Well, 30% or 20% depending on your volume of sales, but that's a whole nother story. Gotcha. Well, I mean, someone's got to run some servers, right? Yep. Their content management stuff. Nate, what do you got going on in your related interest in life? Because you're all over the map like usual. This is true. And this time, it's something I'd been looking at for a while now, but didn't really make a commitment to buying anything until just recently. I got these magnetic USB cables on eBay. I have micro USB and USB-C devices and a myriad of cables. And typically speaking, it seems like none of the cables really last very long because kids, I don't know how they do this. Incredible ability to destroy ports and connectors. I can attest to that. That is one of my biggest complaints with kids and technology. It makes you want to like punch drywall or something. But anyway, so I got cables on one end. It has like a little netic attach side and they have like USB-C and uh, USB, micro USB. And also I think they have the one, whatever Apple uses for their goofy port. That's also another option. And then the cable is universal, no matter what you use and has really good hold to it. I can almost just get my phone or whatever near the cable. And it'll just snap itself right into place and it's reversible. So there's not one right way to put it in. So it has the beauty of the USB-C. You can flip it anyway. I can put these things and I already have put these things in all the kids' tablets. So now they're no longer wrenching on the cable ends or unplugging and replugging them in. We have a kid phone that they get to share, which normally doesn't last very long because, well, kids, it's for games. It doesn't matter what cable now, what device. They just plug it in with a magnetic thing. And then when they walk away, which they invariably will, it just falls out and doesn't cause the extra stress on the connector port. Wait, now, mind you, it's only been for a couple of weeks now that I've been testing this. It's been great. Every device minus one, it's worked fantastically on. And that one device that it hasn't worked on was my computer. I thought bigger USB-C, I could charge it from that as well, but for whatever reason, it doesn't work. But wait, there's more. On the USB-A side of it, that connector is also reversible. You know how like USB-A, it takes three times before you actually get it inserted? You know what I'm talking about? You look at it, plug in, it doesn't work, so you turn it over, plug in, it doesn't work. And so it's the third time, the third side always seems to work. Well, this is also reversible. So the way they modified the end, I'm sure this isn't to 100% spec of whoever standard. You can plug it in either way and it works the way they modified the connector. And so on one end, I have this beautiful magnetic, which does still do data connector side and then on the other end 
it doesn't matter. I can just plug it in and it goes in. It's one of these like little simple things in life where it made my life way more simple to deal with cables and such. I'm hoping that these cables, these magnetic ends hold up because it might mean it'll be less time spent with a soldering iron and a tablet open to replace ports. So I'm really excited. We'll see how this turns out. This will be one of those things we'll come back to in a year from now and I'll either be still singing the praises or mad. Does it do fast charging? Yes. Really? Yep. When I plug my phone in, it says turbo power connected. I'm going to go ahead and say yes to that one. That is really cool. We currently have at least two, probably three of the fire tablets right now where because the kids are needing to charge the device at the same time they're wanting to use them and they have the cable cranked at this very funky angle. We actually tossed a bunch of cables recently because they completely destroyed the cables, but the charging port inside the device right now is just difficult. So if the tablet and the charging cable isn't at the right angle, it won't charge right now. Because they're fire devices, I really don't have any intention of opening them up and replacing the ports just because I'd rather wipe them and send them off to be recycled instead of messing with them that much. Right. I really like the idea of the magnetic cables. Yeah, I think it's pretty awesome. And the only reason I have no problem tearing open a tablet and seeing if I can fix it is because, you know, basically nothing ventured, nothing lost. If I screwed up, it wasn't working anyway. So I can at least practice. Yeah. Well, right now these are working. They haven't completely stopped charging. I've never done any soldering. So I'd want it to be on a device that was completely dead and not just a pain in the butt. So when one of these won't charge any anymore. We'll be talking. All right. I'll let you know how it works out for me. Sounds good. But so far, so good. We'd like to continue this discussion with you on Telegram, in Discourse, Mumble, or Discord. Visit the DLN website for information on how to connect to the social channels and all of our shows and creators at destinationlinux.network. For more information on where you can find stuff about me, go to cubiclenate.com. Links to my regular written blatherings, podcast, and YouTube channel can be found there. And you can find my random ramblings on Twitter at MattDLN. You can find me on Macedon at WendyDLN at Macedon.online. Be sure to check out the DLN merch store and grab yourself some of the awesome DLN Extend swag along with stuff from across the network. As always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another fantastic episode of DLN Extend. Until then, have a great week, everyone. 